This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called The Power of Microgroups to Transform and Multiply Disciples. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one-page summary of how they advise people to do these microgroups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download for free through discipleship.org. So go online and download their free PDF on how to do microgroups at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's the track session for Global Discipleship Initiative. Good morning. These things are coming running right after another, aren't they? They're like, catch up with me before I get started here again or something. So, well, welcome. Uh, I see some familiar faces. I see some new faces. So this is the challenge of these kind of serial workshops is how do we keep, how do we keep some continuity? How do we reintroduce ourselves to those who are new? So who's new, not been to our sessions? Okay, we've got quite a few. So who am I? Introduce me. Uh, <laughs> so my name is Greg Ogden, and uh, Ralph Rittenhouse and I are partnering uh, on this ministry. You have a handout in front of you called Global Discipleship Initiative. I'm glad to introduce this ministry to you. And uh, we are, have been in existence really just officially about 18 months uh, as a 501c3 and uh, our uh, our mission is to start disciple-making movements. Our vision is to have a disciple-making movement a la reproducing quads uh, in every country in the world by 2026. So uh, how's that going to happen? Only Lord knows. <laughs> uh, I, I was reading the uh, call of Abraham recently out of Genesis chapter 15, and the Lord says to Abraham, uh, you're going to have descendants as many as the stars in the heavens or the sands of the sea. And Abraham says, I don't even have an heir yet. How can I have you know, that many? I thought, that's a wonderful passage of scripture because it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, he had no clue how that was going to happen. And that's kind of the way we feel at this point in time. The Lord is going to have to unfold uh, that plan. Uh, for us to, to see that uh, take place. Well, Ralph and I have been partnering. Uh, Ralph has been uh, the pastor. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about yourself. Pastor at Camarillo Community Church for a week or two. <laughs> I went to Camarillo in 1983 and I pastored there for 32 years. And for any congregation to put up with one guy for 32 years, that's, that speaks of their, their willingness to endure. Um, started with a small handful of people and watched God grow a, grow a church. And we grew, uh, we, we built buildings, we added programs, we added staff. Uh, we were successful by the American standard of success. Uh, like I said to the groups before, it's like an NFL team. You gotta have the show in, on the field, you gotta have the people in the stands, you gotta have the money coming in, uh, and your success. Uh, that's the way we do business in America. Uh, that's the way you do church in America. Uh, you've got the buildings, you've got the people, you've got the programs, your success. But we weren't making disciples. And we knew we weren't making disciples. 
Uh, in fact, there was no ch all the churches in America were asking the same question we're making. How do we do a better job? Because we're closing 3,000 churches a year in America. What's happening to Christianity in America? If you put as much salt in your soup, gals, as we say we have, you know, Christians, born-again Christians in America, you couldn't eat the soup. It'd be so salty. But that's, we're not salt. We're not impacting our culture. Um, what's wrong? Um, so <clears throat> I discovered, I was reading a, an article by John Ortberg on an airplane about discipleship, and it mentioned Greg Ogden. I knew the name, but I didn't know what he did, so I Googled him when I got down and found out he'd written a book on transforming discipleship. I ordered a copy of it. I began to read it. Uh, I got copies for several of my staff. I had them read it. We got together. We said, we're going to try an experiment. We're going to do it just like Greg, just by the book. We're going to do it just like he said. We're not going to tell anybody it's going to be an experiment because if it fails, who cares? You know, that's what experiments do. We just call it an experiment. We won't advertise. We'll just... And what he suggested, what he's saying is, do your discipleship in gender-specific quads, okay? Go get three guys, uh, gals get three gals, and do your discipleship, and I'll give you the curriculum. So he gave us a curriculum. We found a workbook, <clears throat> or got the workbook that he was, he was giving us. Uh, it's basic Christianity, you know, Bible College 101. It's all the stuff that you need to know as a believer. <clears throat> well presented, but it's, it's not the only discipleship stuff out there. There's lots of it. But it has a built-in multiplication component. You sign a covenant that says, when I get done with this, I'm going to go find three more guys and do it again. And that's emphasized all the way through. So multiplication was in there. So we said, okay, let's try it. I started doing it. Daryl started doing it. Jim started doing it. Bev started doing it. The four of us would meet once a week and just talk about progress, okay, what we're seeing happen <clears throat> in the groups. It wasn't probably three, two months in, and we knew something was happening. You know, where two or three gathered, my name, Darrell B., he kept showing up, and we began to, we sensed his presence. The Holy Spirit is the leader when you do these quads. It's not, there's not a teacher. Uh, you just use the curriculum, and the, and the leader says, what'd you get for answer four? You know, what'd you get for question five? And that's, that's all he does. You know, and so it doesn't take a lot of background or knowledge or anything else to be able to lead the group. You just have to convene it, get them to come together, and, and start meeting regularly we began to see life change happening. My life was changing. There's memory verses. I started memorizing scripture again. Uh, and usually it wasn't one verse. It was usually two or three, which meant I had to <clears throat> mull over scripture all week long and meditate on it all week long in my mind to, get, to be able to say it. Uh, that in itself will change your life. But we all of doing the homework and getting prepared, praying for each other as we were, uh, our lives began to change. Our church began to change. Uh, after the first year, our groups doubled. Instead of, you know, four groups with 16 people, uh, we became uh, 45 people, and we became 60 people. We became 120 people. We be and the thing just took over the church. In about five years, uh, almost everybody in the church is in a quad. Uh, this thing has taken over. Not only that, there are seven other churches in town that are doing it because it's just jumped. It's just it's just jumped. Uh, not only that, it leaped the ocean. Uh, and I shared this in the last session. Uh, we, we're now doing it in countries around the world. And we did not intend that. We had no idea that was going to happen. But in Southern California, you've got this mixed ethnic culture there, people from all over the world. And uh, people say, well, you know, I've got people in Mozambique where our team just came back from that they need this. You know, they need, or they need, in uh, Malaysia, they need this, or in China, they need this. And so it's, it's, just, it's just gone. And we watched it. We formed an organization now. 
uh, where uh, we're just going and helping pastors and churches figure out how to do discipleship and using these materials. Uh, they work for us, and we figure they'll work for a few other people too. So that's what we're sharing. Great. Uh, just briefly, my background has uh, been as a pastor, 38 years, retired in March of 12, and moved to Monterey, California from Chicago. Uh, nice move, huh? Yeah. Um, so we're loving that, and uh, but carrying on. This has been the theme throughout my ministry in terms of intentionality, making disciples, empowering God's people for ministry, uh, discipling people to maturity, uh, seeing them reproduce. Uh, so that's sort of the thread that's run throughout. So that's a little bit of the background uh, for the two of us. Um, you know, we want to move in this session into some, what's the content that you use? But let me do a little bit of refresher here for those of you who are, are, are new to this session. And I think I have a picture that's a little different than what I've showed before to re review. Uh, so uh, we are saying that this group of three or four that we call microgroups, I call that the container, uh, in which the experience uh, uh, is formed. And there's elements that come together in this container uh, or, the, or the environment that creates for the transformative environment. Uh, we talk about this as the hothouse of the Holy Spirit, where we see accelerated growth in people's lives. And to watch that you know, pick up. Uh, so that one of the four elements uh, that reside in this container that make for the atmosphere of, of life change or rapid growth First of his transparency. We've talked about the need for honesty and trust in relationships. You, you've heard that as a theme throughout this conference, haven't you? Uh, is there any transformation or discipleship unless you are real with people about what's going on in your life? That can be real in terms of the joys in your life. That can be real in terms of the areas that you recognize as areas of transformation that you need to change in. Uh, the identifiable sin in our life that needs to, to be recognized uh, so openness and transparency. Uh, second is what we call I would call it truth in community, the truth of God's word in the context of relationships, or the application of truth to where we live. Uh, so uh, all uh, scriptures inspired of God and profitable for what teaching, reproof, for uh, correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, so that taking that truth, but what we do so often in the context of the church is we teach truth as information, but not as transformation. And what changes it from information to transformation? The presentation of our lives. Uh, and the opportunity to process it in, uh, in the context of a relationship. Too many of our Bible studies are somebody up there teaching the word, or there are even Bible studies that say, you cannot talk about your personal life here. Uh, the only thing you can talk about is the answers to the questions. And some of you know the Bible study I'm talking about. Um, so I think, how can you do a Bible study without application uh, to where you live in your life? Um, but that's uh, accountability. We call this life change accountability. Uh, the idea that uh, we mutually present ourselves to each other uh, around a covenant. Uh, what's a covenant? A covenant is agreement between two or more people. Uh, this, that describes the commitments and the expectations in the relationship. And you are mutually committing to a, a standard of how you're going to live together. And uh, I call this the most countercultural element uh, within the discipleship process. What is it that makes Americans Americans? What sets us apart from everybody else? Rugged individualism. Rugged individualism freedom. 
you can't tell me what to do. Uh, isn't that the idea? And then to enter into a group here that says, I'm going to mutually submit to uh, standards, and if I fall short of those standards and you see me fall short, I'm giving you the right to identify that for me. Wow. That, that really cuts against the grain. There was a study that was done in the mid-'80s by Robert Bella called Habits of the Heart. I don't know if some of you have read that book from some time back. It was really about updating the de Tocqueville study back in the 1830s of what he observed in terms of what was distinct about America. And uh, so in the study, he said, well, Americans have a certain type of freedom, certain view of freedom, but it's freedom from obligation. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and nobody better tell me otherwise. <laughs> um, now, I'll date myself with this next illustration. Anybody heard of Peter, Paul, and Mary in the group here? <laughs> okay. My second date with my now wife uh, was to a Peter, Paul, and Mary concert at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Southern California. So, but uh, Paul Stuckey used to have this routine that he'd do at the concerts and to describe this idea of individualism in America. He says, a generation ago, what was the magazine that dominated, you know, America? And he said, Life magazine. He had his hands out like this. He says, we went from life to people, from people to self. You can find self magazine in, in the airports. And I said, I'm waiting for the next generation of magazine to come out. It's simply entitled Me. And you open it up, it's an aluminum foil reflecting your image back at yourself. <laughs> so that kind of captures it, I think. You know, it serves a life change accountability. So, that, so we build our groups around a covenant. Um, we'll look at that in a, in a moment. Final thing is mission. Uh, these groups are base communities from which we are sent uh, into mission. So... You pray about people in your network of relationships and friendships and neighborhood, uh, work associates who God puts on your heart that need Christ in their life, that aren't, haven't come yet to a saving relationship with Christ. So you're praying for people by name in, this, in the context of these groups. Amazing what happens when you are doing that and being sensitized to these people that God's heart is drawn to and your heart is drawn to. Um, you're helping each other discover your unique mission, because I personally believe that all of us have been given a unique mission from God. We have a call of God on our life that's related to our, our talents, our abilities, our gifts, and particularly a need that you care about. We help each other identify that need that God has put on our hearts, because this is a broken world with massive amounts of needs. We can't care about them all, <laughs> um, but we can care about one aspect of, of that. So... Um, when these elements come together, it makes for the transformational setting. So this is the container um, or that uh, we exist in, or the environment uh, for that. But you need content to be put into that container uh, or curriculum, uh, this truth of God's word uh, that's in that. So what this session about is about this content. Uh, that, that we have. So um, I'm going to start uh, with, a, with a question, and uh, since we are practicing quads, uh, we want you to get into a, some discussion groups here right to begin with, and particularly focus on the second question, what are the consequences if you do not have a foundational curriculum, whether it's discipleship essentials or some other tool, 
why might a foundational universal curriculum be a value of, for a ministry? Uh, but if you don't have one, what are the consequences of that? Okay. So uh, imagine that. So find three other people, two or three other people. We'll do th threes and fours, triads and quads. Uh, introduce yourself to those around you. And we'll spend a, a few minutes uh, discussing that, and then we'll debrief uh, this question. Looks like you found something to talk about. That's good. So let's, let's take a look at that first question, and uh, let me harvest some answers here. Uh, so whether it's Discipleship Essentials, which we'll talk about here in a moment, or some other tool, uh, why might a foundational universal curriculum uh, that say the church is adopted as saying, this is what we want uh, everybody to be exposed to. Why might that be of a benefit to a congregation? What, uh, what could be the value? What did you talk about? I'm sorry? Provide some navigation for your voyage. Private navigation for your voyage, okay. Uh, yeah, you're anticipating our, our next session. So thank you. <laughs> uh, when we pull it all together in terms of that, that image, it's our... It's our GPS. Yeah, it does uh, provide a, that foundation of how you get to the, your destination. So, good. What else? Yes, in the yellow shirt. I like the word, like word foundation that you're, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that will pound Romans for six months or do spiritual gifts for four weeks, but those are like these deep silos, and that yeah. doesn't give you a foundation. Right. So I, I, like, I really like that word that you want people to be not only on the same page, but just kind of doctrinally and applications, and we're all kind of, it's this foundation, yeah. that's a great word. Yeah. Is there a certain kind of, in a sense, core mm -hmm. of the Christian life that you want to have everybody have in place upon which to build? Mm -hmm. You know, that's what a foundation is, isn't it? So I want that to, that to be secure. Yes? Well, we came up with several. Um, one, that it's having a curriculum makes everything more reproducible. Yeah. Curriculum is reproducible. Yeah. Okay. Generation to generation. Right. And uh, I know for me and my church, it means that there's a couple of people who are excited, but kind of rogue from different backgrounds. Okay. And this would allow them to be useful without me having to wonder what they're teaching. Okay. Yeah. So if you had, if they were going through the curriculum and staying with it, of course, staying. With, yeah. So you have people that you think can sort of easily get off the rails in a sense. Yeah. Uh, so having some rails to stay on uh, would be that would be a helpful approach. Okay. Good. What if you don't have uh, any universal curriculum, any foundational curriculum? Uh, what are the consequences of that? Yes. Yeah. So if you if you don't have any foundational curriculum, it's, it gets watered down. You're saying I need to repeat this for the microphone. Hello. Uh, so okay. Okay, without clarity, there's a lack of confidence and, and fallout. So at least somebody has charted some territory there uh, which to follow so you're not left to your own devices uh, to, to figure that out. Anything else in terms of what are the consequences if you don't have a curriculum? The people you're trying to train are fearful. 
Yeah. When they have to go right. teach, they, they feel less equipped. Right. right. Okay. So fear, uh, they feel less equipped if they, if they don't have something to, to hold on to. Let me, let me go through a, a few things that, that sort of answer that second question uh, in maybe a little more systematic way, but you've already said a lot of it, but I'll, I'll expand on it. For, my first point is, if you don't have a curriculum, you don't have a plan. There's no plan as to where you're trying to take people. And the image that comes to my mind is that, it, I would say for most of us who are uh, believers and somewhat serious about it, uh, we, we have sort of a collection of individual truths that we have never assembled uh, into a holistic picture of what the Christian life is all about. Uh, you go hear a sermon, there's some great points that are made, and you kind of, I, I compare it to puzzle pieces. And uh, we've got a puzzle piece from a sermon. We, we throw it in the box. We do some devotional life. And, oh, there's another truth there. That puzzle piece, we, we throw it in the box. Somebody says something of great insight, and you say, oh, I want to hold on to that puzzle piece. I throw it in the box. But you've got a lot of disconnected puzzle pieces. <laughs> Have you ever taken those, assembled them into a picture of what the Christian life is all about? Hopefully, what a good curriculum does is assembles a picture of what the Christian life is all about, puts it together. I, one of my early uh, discipleship groups that I had uh, when I started this process way back many years ago, it's too long for me to remember even, um, that uh, I tried to get the this discipleship process going among the women in our church. I'd done it with the men, of course, as naturally would expect. And actually some of the women came to us and said, we see what's happening with the men, what about us? And uh, so I, I, I said, well, I've got a great idea. Uh, I'll make a list of about 15 to 20 women in our congregation who are well-respected in terms of their, their faith. I'll pull them together on a Saturday morning. I'll give them the Jesus challenge to go out there and make disciples just like Jesus did. Uh, at the end of the session, I'll say to them, you know, you go out and find two or three other women, start a discipleship group, and, well, instantaneously have 15 to 20 groups going. Great idea. What'd they say to me? Time out. <laughs> Slow down. Uh, you know what you're talking about, but we don't. Uh, we've never experienced this. We don't. We can see what you're saying. And, that, and their suggestion to me was, why don't you take two of us and introduce the process to them and then uh, set them off? Okay, good idea. In other words, they said, slow down. And basically, that was my first experience with the admonition, don't go too fast, don't cut corners, uh, slow down in the process. So, uh, so two of the women I selected, one was about 10 years my senior, another about 10 years my junior, and we got going, went through the process. A little bit awkward for me, I will admit, uh, as one in the process, but after we were done, uh, the one who was about 10 years my senior came up to me and she said, Greg, I have something to confess to you. And I said, well, what's that? She said, well, I got involved in the group because, frankly, I wanted to spend some time with you. I don't think there was anything romantic in that at all, but it's just a, a mutual respect. And uh, so she said, um, you know, what surprised me was I'd grown up in a Christian home. The Bible's been part of my life. My father was a pastor. And I realized, and she used this image of a mosaic, I had a lot of missing tiles in my mosaic. And I never put the picture together until I went through this stuff that you had written. And she, so that was what her feeling. So whether it's puzzle pieces or missing tiles in a, a mosaic, having a curriculum gives you a plan that puts it together and creates a foundation. 
So that's the first one. Without a curriculum, you don't have a plan. Secondly, without a curriculum, you will not be intentional. Uh, where are you going? What's the, the GPS that was, was mentioned, mentioned earlier? The way I define discipling uh, in Discipleship Essentials, in fact, it's the very first lesson on page 17 in, in this book. What is discipling? Discipling is an intentional relationship uh, in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow towards maturity in Christ. This includes equipping the disciple to teach others as well. So the reproduction, but the word intentional, intentional discipling. Uh, So without uh, a a curriculum, you will not have a plan in which to, to run on, a place to go. What's the opposite of intentional? haphazard, <laughs> random, uh, let's get together when we can, uh, that kind of thing. So you have tracks to run on, there's a regularity of a focus, there's an intentional process. Without a curriculum, this uh, number three here, without a curriculum you will not have a transferable tool. That's the value of this. Uh, I think this is probably one of the things that's been mentioned in other places in this, this conference, maybe other seminars that you have, have been to uh, on, the, on the tracks. Future disciples need a tool in their hand that they can use with others. You know, if you don't have something to hand off and say, go back through this, uh, what would happen if you just simply said, well, go out and disciple others <laughs> without some kind of tool to, to do that with? You're on your own to go- cobble it together. Uh, one of the reasons why I wrote this material was I did a lot of one-on-one discipling for many years, and I was just kind of making it up as I went. Uh, oh, let's grab basic Christianity and study that and get some of the basic doctrine down. John Stott's written a great book on that, so let's read that together and study that. Well, I guess we should do some stuff on devotional life. Let me see if I can gather some together some things on quiet time and prayer and Bible study and put some of those resources together. Well, I guess we should apply our life to our family and our workplace, and you know, let's find some stuff there that we can use. And I felt like I was just always kind of making it up as I went. Um, the way Discipleship Essentials came about uh, was that I was out actually jogging around the high school track one day, as I was often doing, and, uh, and as I was jogging, probably with this frustration of discipling roaming around inside of me, but I don't think I was consciously thinking about that at the time, and all of a sudden had this arrow coming out of the sky was what it felt like that came right through me, and one minute, one second before, I wasn't thinking about this. The sec- next second, I had this format of what discipleship essentials should be in my mind. The four parts of core truth, scripture memory, inductive Bible study, and a reading with some questions. And it was like there instantaneously. I was r- just right before um, our vacation time. I think at that point in time, we had about a seven or eight-year-old daughter. And we're all getting ready to go off to a vacation home. And I said to my wife, I've got to write this curriculum. You've got to give me the mornings to get started on this. Uh, I'll, I'll be with you at noon, but if you can give me the mornings, let me get going. So that was kind of the beginning uh, of that of this whole thing. So uh, then I realized that there's a you know a huge difference between relationship and program. We've talked about this in, uh, in other sessions. So we're trying to we're, this whole conference is about a relational approach to disciple making, getting involved with, with in people's lives. Uh, versus a program approach. Uh, so some of the contrast there is that uh, uh, running a program is holding a class. I mean, this is kind of a program. 
setting at this point. You know, we've prepared something for you. You're here uh, taking it in. I don't know how you're receiving it. Yeah. It doesn't require anything of you to be sitting here <laughs> at this moment. You could be checked out as far as I know uh, in terms of where, what you're thinking at this point. Or, oh, gosh, I got the wrong session here. I should be somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> uh, so versus a, a relationship where you're you know, engaged with each other. You know, that group of three or four, there's nowhere to go. Programs uh, tend to be impersonal. It um, doesn't require um, me to have much knowledge of you, or you to have much knowledge of me in that, in that setting. The small relationships says we're going to know each other and we're going to get involved in each other's story, each other's life. But probably the most important characteristic here is programs are about synchronization, marching people lockstep at the same speed, at the same place all the way through. So we're going to have a 10-week program on making disciples. You all sign up. At the end of the program, there'll be disciples that pop out the other end. But you're all on lesson one together, on lesson two, lesson three. You're sharing your answers. You're interacting with content. But probably not bringing a whole lot of yourself uh, to it. Uh, and certainly not required to share much of yourself. The whole idea of a discipleship relationship is it's customized. That you are known. You are sharing who you are. You're applying the truth of God's word in the context of who you are in that, in that relationship. So... The idea of having a transferable tool in the content contest uh, context of this uh, this container is, is important. So that's number three. Without number four, without a curriculum, you don't have a, a sense of progress. Um, that's certainly what I felt when I was doing the one-on-one discipling. We were just bouncing around from one thing to another in terms of what came up in the conversation. Where is this going? How am I helping you become what? You, God needs you to be, and I'm even helping myself in the, in the context of that relationship. So, at least with a curriculum that has some kind of sense of progression to it, that's one truth built upon another truth, you have a framework uh, of progress and in which to, to, do your, to do your relationship. So, um, that really, I think, helps that sense of that you're, you're making, making strides. And then number five, without a curriculum... You will not have a structure to define your time. In these groups, basically you divide your time into kind of two parts. There's the personal connection time, and then there's the covering the content time. Now, now they're not hermetically sealed (laughs) apart from from each other. They, They certainly overlap with one another. But I think probably most of our groups, I know, Ralph, if you have this experience, you're taking usually the first part of your time together to do catch-up. Uh, what's been going on this week? You know, I oftentimes will ask a sharing question like, uh, what makes it hard for you to be here at this time, today? You know, what's happening in the week? Uh, has there been an upside in the week? Has there been a downside in your week? You know, you're catching up. You may have prayed about some things from the previous week that you're following up on. How's that going with um, you know, an illness or whatever it may be? So you're doing some sharing. Uh, maybe somebody has said, I'm going to follow through on a particular thing, and you're asking the person, well, did you follow through on that thing? I, I had a guy in one of my groups, my name is Zach. Zach, every week, would show up and say, I'm just not feeling very useful. I should go volunteer for some organization that could, where I could feel useful. 
And he did this for about five or six weeks in a row. <laughs> and we finally, you know, we'd given him some suggestions as to places he could go make some contact. And finally had to say, Zach, you're not coming back here again telling us you're not feeling useful unless you tell us <laughs> what you have done, you know, to address that. So, you know, maybe there are those kinds of things that uh, you're, you're catching up with each other on. So, but the sharing and then there's this more structured study time with a lot of questions that apply certainly right back to where you are personally living. So keeping balance on that, I think that's one of the issues. I don't know, how, how do you do that, Ralph? How do you keep balance between the personal sharing and the content coverage? Do you have uh, any thoughts about, about it's that? It's intentional. It's intentional? Yeah. yeah. You, you come, have to. come on out. <clears throat> yeah, I think to keep, your, keep your, your group balanced and keep it focused on life change is something you have to be intentional about. I find that I'm, I can get more into the just the curriculum, just answering the questions and going through the procedure and forget that sometimes. And for me, that's I'm just the way I'm wired. That's easy to do. Uh, and I have to remind myself, no, I want, we're looking for life change here. You know, when we're in the evangelism section of the book, you know, uh, who are you praying for? Um, I, I, I ask questions that aren't necessarily there, but I want to make sure that it's, that's getting, it's connecting with life. Um, the, there's a lot of relational material and uh, relational application. You know, how is this affecting you and your wife? How is this affecting your children? How is this affecting guys at work? You know, what is this doing? How is this changing you in the way you respond to those things? So asking those kinds of questions intentionally helps connect the material to everyday life. So, yeah. Good. And that balance of personal sharing with content, uh, I... I tend to err on the side of the personal sharing, and we get slowed down on the content. And so, sometimes they always say, "Let's let's speed it up here. We got to got to catch up and uh, keep on moving." So, those are some of the things that, if you don't have a curriculum, that's could be the downside. Yeah. Sorry, can I just go back sure. to the, the transferable piece? When sure, transferable say, tool. Yeah, you're saying the benefit is, or one of the benefits is, it's customizable as opposed to a program where there's a synchronization. Yeah, okay. However, isn't there a balance there? Isn't there, uh, doesn't a curriculum really, isn't that a synchronized plan? Yes. Uh, Relate to the pacing? I always say that there, there are programmatic elements in the context of relationship. So the relationship is priority. It's the, what, what you're, you know, I've gone through this same curriculum, I can't tell you how many times, over 30 years you know, with different groups. And the number one question I get is, well, doesn't that get old? And my answer is, no. Why? Because the people are different. <laughs> Every group has its own personality. Every group has people on their own faith journey, issues they're dealing with, context and setting. And uh, so it, it doesn't get old because you're, you're seeing the content in, through the lives of these people. And so that's why it's customized. Yeah, so it's customized because the people customize it uh, to their own life. So yes, there is a plan, and there's, there's the same content, or the tracks that you are running on, in a sense. Um, but it's the people's lives that come together in that. Yeah. Any other questions or comments at this point? Okay, let's go on to look at, in, in a little more detail here. Um, oh. I should advance these slides every once in a while. Um, so, did you catch all that? 
You want to review your notes? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I was clear. Um, so overview of characteristics. So here's six things that we'll look at uh, in terms of the, hopefully, the characteristics of a good curriculum. Uh, and we hope that that will be manifested in this book, Discipleship Essentials. So transferable tool, progression, simple without being simplistic, easy to use format, highly interactive, egalitarian, everyone can participate, and personal. I'll go through these uh, one at a time so you don't need to, are they on your list already? They're there? Okay. Um, I forgot what I put on outlines. So transferable tool. Um, let's, let's delve into this a little bit more. Yeah. So one of the values of having a tool, as it says here, uh, can be used and reused uh, over and over again. Um, and I always find new things through the insights that other people have. I'm constantly taking notes on other people's answers to questions. Some people will come up with images. I think we were talking about discipling uh, early on in, the, in these lessons. I remember one of my guys who always had some picture in mind. He, he thinks in pictures, and I, I don't. And so any times that somebody comes up with an image, I grab hold of it. He said, well, discipling is like uh, what you see in old Western movies. Remember the sheriff, you know, comes through, and the bad guys are out there and need to be chased, and, and the sheriff uh, gathers up a posse, and he immediately deputizes them and slaps a badge on them and sends them off to go catch the bad guys. And he says, I, I think that's what Jesus did. <laughs> he deputizes us. He slaps a badge on us. He gives us authority and sends us off. I thought, that's pretty good. You know, that's a, that's a good image uh, in terms of what that, what that looks like. So it showed up in my latest writing. I stole it from him, but I'm, I appreciate that. So we're learning things from each other. Kind of, uh, the framework for teaching, we've kind of already talked about that, uh, gives the discipler confidence. Uh, do not need to know it all. What's the broad role of curriculum? Uh, it provides the, the truth discovery content, and in some ways the, the curriculum is the teacher along, of course, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the teacher because the one who makes application uh, to our lives bores that truth in us. But you don't have to be the teacher. The curriculum can be the teacher, so it provides that as a substitute. That's why it makes it more universally accept, available so that almost anybody can lead a, a group like this as long as they're willing to go invite two or three other people to join you in the discipleship, even though the leader is the convener of the group and helps you discover, gather around the, the, the covenant. Uh, almost immediately, uh, you begin sharing leadership within a group. Uh, so I'll lead a first number of sessions uh, I'll give my model, but somebody doesn't have to follow that model. But uh, as Ralph said, the curriculum is kind of laid out. There's questions that everybody has answered when they come together. Uh, and you're just kind of going through the material. You've used the material, right, and in terms of your, your setting. Um, how many have used Discipleship Essentials, and how do you do it? So any, any of you share that experience? How do you cover the content? Some of you raised your hand. No, so, huh? In what respect? Well, how do you go? How do you? How do you? How do you do your lessons? How, what's the? What's the format in which you engage people in interacting over the content of the lessons? Uh, well, we just go through what's on in the workbook. We answer the questions. 
of course, everybody comes up with different stuff. But, yeah, and, okay. Uh, uh, we have one person who's a youth uh, each week, and just to get them, you know, used to being uh, the leader, and uh, we just, you know, go like, you know, what, what did you have? What did you have? And then we talk about the differences and uh, different w- approaches to answering questions. Okay. So people have come with their material complete. That's the whole idea. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're going through the questions. You're just asking people to share what their insights are, what they came up with. Uh, in terms of that that material, and uh, focused on that, and it's it's fairly simple, and so some it has to be simple and reproducible. Uh, so and then if you have people fairly early on who are I just usually say uh, each one take a lesson and take us all the way through that lesson, and by the end of the time, twenty five lessons of disciples of essentials, everybody has led multiple times uh, during that time, and you found out, gee, I can do this. It's not that difficult um, to do, and it's, so when it comes down back down to the reproduction time, um, they they realize that yeah they can do this. Yeah, David. Is it is it set up so that uh, when people respond to uh, questions that they've been guided into perhaps a a key scripture that would oh, yeah. give insight to that? Yes. Or is it just personal reflection and opinion? No, uh, I mean all all the lessons are built upon a scripture, so. Um, there's a memory verse, and the memory verse, the first question uh, around the memory verse is to put that memory verse in the context in which it is. Uh, so to look at the context around it, there's a couple questions, or a question usually related to what's the context surrounding the memory verse, and then there's the questions about the memory verse. Uh, so, and the usual, you know, observation, ap- interpretation, application questions. What are you seeing? How would you, uh, you know, what do you think this means? What do you suppose this means? And then some application questions to our own, own life. Yes? Yeah. Are you finding churches, um, if they already have a current framework for like, uh, whether they call it Sunday school class or life group on Sunday morning, uh, like sermon-based curriculum or something like that, are a lot of them doing this in lieu of that, like on the week, like during the week, so they have both a class commitment here and a, you know, triad or quad? Yeah, I don't know if I have a you know survey of you know the different ways that people are are applying it, um, but you you have a lot of both and um, you know kind of situations where people will be a part of a more traditional say small group, uh, maybe it's a couples group or a couple and singles group of, of ten to twelve in size, but also involved in a more intentional discipleship relationship. Uh, some who are involved in like you say in a, in a Sunday school class um, uh, and and this. Uh, but some people have to make a choice um, between, in terms of simply seasons of life and amount of time uh, that you have. I imagine parents with young kids are the ones that are most challenged uh, in terms of in terms of time, and so they have to make some decisions. Um, my one of my birds is for young fathers, and uh, usually you're asking young fathers to be involved in discipleship groups at a time in their life when they are the most challenged in terms of time because the kids have activities, they're arising in their careers, um, there's a great demand there, and yet they are, uh, most, it's most important that they are discipling their kids and have the comfort, have the, the confidence and competence to be, able, be the spiritual leaders in their home. Um, so trying to you know, get somebody's attention when life is so busy uh, is, is challenging with that. Greg, I've mentioned right. once before that uh, what we do is is we take a chapter a month instead of a chapter a week, and we you've got to divide it into four sections, 
and yes. we just take uh, one page a week, and that that gives us time to answer. Not only it gives us little homework to do, but it gives us a lot of time to, to give answers and also then to discuss what everybody yeah. has put. And you say you only you mean an hour a week rather than ninety minutes, right? Right. So okay, just so you have that confined time. Generally, we suggest at least ninety minutes, but. I can see why you kind of keep it more narrowly focused if you only have an hour of, well, we of time spent. Great, great discussions. Good. That's great. <laughs> it's good. Wonderful. Good. The next item I have up here, even someone who is new to the faith can use, use the curriculum and master it in, in a short enough time to be able to turn around and use it. Um, I mentioned Mick here. Oh, it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, Mick um, came to our church in Chicago he was about 65 years old, I think, when he came in. He had been a lifelong Roman Catholic, um, had uh, gone to Mass every Sunday of his adult life, I believe. And uh, he had married a, a young Methodist gal 40 years before, and in order for her, them to get married in the Catholic Church, uh, Sally said, okay, I'll convert to Roman Catholicism so I can get married in the Church. Well, 40 years transpires, and uh, this young Methodist gal is no longer young, and she's saying, Mick... I'm ready to go back to my Protestant roots. And so if you want to come with me, fine. If not, that's up to you. And Mick would say, you know, Sally sat in, in Mass every Sunday morning, and that's where she read her Bible. She just read her Bible during Mass and didn't follow along with the script. Um, and so Mick finally says, well, if she's going to a Protestant church, I better find out what they're about. So he shows up in our first new members, our new members class, the first Sunday, and he hands me a notebook, and it's 97 single-space pages of him comparing Roman Catholicism to Protestantism in terms of theology and practice. I thought, this guy's serious. 97 single-space pages. He says, now I have a satisfied mind. I can, I can make this step. Well, that's the kind of person he was. So I thought, well, he's ready for a discipleship group. And I was just getting ready to start a new one, so I invited Mick uh, to, to join our group. And uh, we met in a law office, 6.30 on Thursday mornings. Mick shows up for that first gathering with his study Bible with all the Bible tabs on it. And uh, he puts the Bible on the, on the desk in that conference room, puts his hand on the Bible, and uh, as if he's, I swear to tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. <laughs> and uh, he says, you know, I have never opened a Bible. And I heard that, and I said, what, what you mean is you've never really studied it seriously. He said, no, I have never opened a Bible. Wow. Hmm. I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting journey. <laughs> We're going to have a ways to go here on this. And uh, we started in, and he had a heck of a time memorizing Scripture. I remember early on, uh, he was absolutely in tears. because He couldn't get the Scriptures memorized. And it was one of those moments where I, I said to myself, do I give him a pass or keep pushing him? And something inside of me said, no, gently, keep pushing him, keep at it, Mick, keep working on it. Because um, he was so disturbed by the fact that he couldn't memorize at this stage of his life. And, but he kept at it. And it was such a victory for him to finally be able to get the memories down. We, we did every rabbit trail in the world, did you can imagine, um, because of all the questions he had. This was a whole new world to him that he was opening up. World of scripture, world of kind of the Protestant context, and uh, we chased down those rabbit trails. 
every time he would bring up a kind of a version of salvation by works that he was still working at it, you know, to try to make sure God could accept him. Uh, we had to sort of go back and say, Mick, all right, remember, this is not about you. <laughs> it's about what Christ has done for you. And uh, that group took about 20 months um, to, to be done. Part of it was because we so enjoyed each other. I don't think we wanted to be done uh, in that time. Mick has led two discipleship groups since that time. Uh, so he, he got enough in that period of time in terms of his investment uh, that he could go out and make those invitations. And well, Mick was smart enough to know what he didn't know. And so he, would start, he started a new group. and they, He kept a list, this is Mick, he kept a list of questions that came up that uh, he didn't know the answers to. And uh, so periodically invite me into the group and say, okay, here's our next set of questions. Uh, you know, um, and I, it was just fun, you know, to, to go in and, and watch that, that take place. So he could take that tool and, and use it and uh, see it happen. Overcome, overcomes a hit and miss approach uh, tool, a tool for pastors and disciples. Um, I think pastors, uh, in one way, are a very underutilized resource. Uh, we've had training and background and life experience, but we don't have a, a, what I would call a filter through which to pass that. And the discipleship essentials or a curriculum, or this discipleship essentials or something else, gives you a context in which you can kind of share some of that life experiences that you have uh, beyond the pulpit um, and uh, brings, that, brings that together. So a transferable tool uh, was, is a major part of this. Uh, a sense of progression. Um, so I apologize for on your outlines, I've given you a mini table of contents. Can you read this at all? You can, okay, good. Let's, let's, we'll test your eyesight. This, uh, I'm not an optometrist, but um, this, we'll this. can you read it from here? So uh, let me just kind of take you through uh, what's in this book in terms of why it's designed the way it is. Um, and like I said, this is obviously one, one option. Um, for our ministry, this is the, the tool that we are promoting and seeing translated. I think we're up to 15, 16 different languages uh, now. The latest uh, one uh, to be applied for is Tagalog in the Philippines. So we're looking forward to that next uh, effort in terms of translation there. But uh, why has this been put together the way it is? So you'll notice uh, it's in four parts, uh, four sections. Uh, growing up in Christ, the message of Christ, becoming like Christ, and serving Christ uh, is the... The, kind of the balance of, of what we're trying to accomplish there. So it begins with uh, two lessons uh, that really set the tone and pace uh, for the curriculum. So right up front, I wanted to say this is about discipling and discipleship. So uh, like I said, there's a core truth that's in a question-answer format. Uh, if any of you come out of Lutheran or Catholic traditions, you might recognize what? A catechism. Uh, so this is a kind of a contemporary catechism in terms of the way this is, is set up. So the core truth is around a question-answer format. So lesson one, the core truth is what is discipling? I've already mentioned that. Discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside each other. Second lesson is on who is a disciple? A disciple is one who responds in faith and obedience to the gracious call <coughs> to follow Jesus Christ. Being a disciple is a lifelong process of dying to self, while allowing Jesus Christ to come alive in us. So disciple, discipleship is kind of included in that, that question and answer in the second lesson. 
So it sets the pace. It sets the tone. It says this is what this is all about. Uh, about you being equipped to disciple others and you being a disciple. So I always say you're wearing two hats in this process. The one hat is about your own discipleship, uh, learning to be obedient uh, to Christ, to follow the, to respond to the gracious call, call to follow Jesus Christ in faith and obedience. Uh, but the second hat you're putting on is I'm being equipped to disciple others. So there's, in a sense, two identities that uh, we have here. Uh, lessons three through six, as you can see on the screen here, are around this issue of kind of personal and corporate disciplines uh, of the faith. So, so it's a rudimentary uh, introduction. Uh, and it really answers the question, how do I stay connected to Christ? Uh, what, are, what are spiritual disciplines? How would you define a spiritual discipline? Anybody has that come to mind? Are these legalistic things that we have to do? That, uh, no. <laughs> spiritual disciplines are what? There are things that you do consistently in order to grow spiritually yeah. and stay connected. There are spiritual habits, spiritual practices. Um, just because you show up to do a Bible study every day, does that mean Jesus shows up in the same way, a powerful way every time? No. Uh, but the idea of the spiritual discipline is it puts you into the presence of God so that he can speak to you uh, and show up. And, it just, and so whether it's we do a lesson on quiet time, uh, just having that silent space in your life that you can carve out. What do you put in that silent space? Well, Bible study and prayer. So some introduction to inductive Bible study of how you get the most out of Scripture. Um, follow a bit of the Acts formula for prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Introduction to that. Um, we look at Jesus' uh, uh, prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, in that section. And then there's a, a chapter on corporate worship uh, as well. So we come together uh, for worship where we look there very powerfully at the holiness of God. We come in the presence of holiness. We're joining the, the worship that is going on around the throne of God at all times when we come together to worship him. We're just entering into the worship that is already there around the throne of God. So that's, that's the, the first major section of the book uh, that's uh, growing up in Christ. Second section answers is the message of Christ. What has Christ done for us? Um, so this is your essential doctrinal content, in a sense, uh, for the foundations of our faith. And it starts with the triune God, the three-person God, three-personal God, being made in the image of God. Uh, lessons around uh, the fact that God is a being in fellowship that exists for all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There never was a time when God was not a personal being. He had love within himself. He created out of the fullness of his love. There's a fellowship within the character of God that's at the center of the universe. And he made us in his image and his likeness as relational beings. The fundamental identity in the image of God in human beings is that we are made for relationship, just as God is a relational being. To love him and love each other. Amazing that Jesus reduces the great commandment to those two things because that's so central to what the way he's designed us. Yeah. So we explore that those two things in, in lessons seven and eight. Um, human beings as the crown jewel of, of his creation and uh, what that means. But we weren't satisfied with that. <laughs> Lesson nine, sin is broken relationship. Uh, we rebelled against God. We take a look at Genesis chapter three in, in this lesson. 
uh, where we distrusted God's goodness and disobeyed his authority. The, the, the basic core of sin is that, that um, you know, the serpent comes to the woman, did God really say? You know, gets her to distrust the goodness of God and then goes in for the kill. Ah, he's only saying this because you want to be like God. He wants you to, he's jealous of this position he has. You know, he wants trying to keep you away from that broken relationship, but God did not let us go. Uh, that's, the ch- that's the grace chapter. He came chasing after us, and of course the story of the prodigal son, or I call it the waiting father, uh, is at the center of that lesson. Uh, if you had to pick one story of Jesus that captured the heart of grace, it certainly I think would probably be that, that story. And then lesson 11 is kind of a, a catch-all lesson around redemption, about the person, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, who is Jesus as the God-man? Uh, only as the God-man could he accomplish what he did for us as the one who took our sin upon himself in his death. And then he demonstrated that he overcame sin uh, through his resurrection. And so we have a, a chapter that covers all that in one chapter. And what are the benefits of the work of Christ? Um, justification and adoption. I say justification is the image of the courtroom uh, where we are not declared not guilty, <laughs> Uh, we're declared that there, somebody else has paid for the guilt of our sin, uh, that somebody else has justified us, has completed the fulfillment of the law, and therefore we are uh, given mercy. So that's the courtroom. But you move from the courtroom to the living room, and the living room is the fact that we've been adopted into the family of God. The highest privilege of the Christian life is that we have been adopted into his life, and that you are a beloved child, I'm a beloved child. Personally, that's my favorite lesson, in the book, because it's more personal for me. I had a hard time believing that I was beloved of God, and I had to have a breakthrough in my life to get to that point, to understand that. So that's the second section of material. The third section is becoming like Christ. Uh, What does Christ want to do in us? What has Christ done for us? What does Christ want to do in us? What's that transformation from within? And so we complete the Trinitarian formula there by looking at the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our life. Filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, filled with the Spirit is that battle between the flesh and the Spirit uh, that we experience. That Paul talks about in Galatians chapter chapter 5. Uh, and then, but the fruit of the Spirit is at the end of that, that same section uh, that, that we are to see love, joy, peace, patience grown in us. That's the delicious uh, fruit of the Spirit that is uh, there. I read those qualities and I say, who wouldn't want that? Love, joy, peace, patience. That is so attractive you know, in terms of our, our life. And then trust. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Uh, what's, the, what's the primary characteristic of a believer? It's, it's love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, Jesus says. So servant love as emulated. Um, by Jesus, that we are to emulate Jesus in uh, when he bows down before his disciples and washes their feet and flips the entire value system of the kingdom and saying, those are the ones that are prized. Chapter 18 is about justice. Love on a societal basis is justice. Justice is almost in scripture equated with mercy. Mercy for those around the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed. Uh, This is my most controversial chapter in the book. I get more comments about this one than anything else. 
I'm accused of being a communist and a socialist. And, and I say, well, I think I'm just reflecting what Scripture says here in terms of God's heart um, that's there. Um, so, um, so God's heart for the disenfranchised. And then the last lesson there is on witness. Um, we are each to be witnesses. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. And we write out our testimony and our story. We practice it with each other. We share that with each other. Uh, all along, we're praying for people that uh, are a network of relationships uh, that are needing that. And then finally, uh, the last section is on serving Christ. What does Christ want to do through us? So what does Christ want to do for us? What does Christ want to do in us? What does Christ want to do through us? It's not about keeping it to ourselves. It's about sharing it uh, with, with others and living it out. So lessons 20 and 21 are on the church, the church as the body of Christ. I think that's the primary image, the fundamental image that Paul uses to describe the church, that uh, it's not just a metaphor for Paul, it's a reality. Jesus lives his life out through his people. We are, we are his extended hands and feet, uh, and uh, we are meant to be, I could say, his replacement people uh, here on earth. But we all have, a, all have a part. That's our ministry gifts. And one of the, this is one of my favorite lessons, too, because you are now helping each other identify the gifts that you have witnessed in each other's lives. And so we have a little exercise that helps you, each person be the center of attention, and we bombard them with the gifts uh, that we see God working in their life, and everybody walks out of there that day feeling quite good about themselves. <laughs> really? You see that in me? Well, that's great. Uh, lessons 22 and 23 on spiritual warfare. Uh, we engage the world, and you know Ephesians 6 uh, is the heart of this lesson. Put on the whole armor of God. Lesson 23 is uh, on obedience. Uh, Paul's idea of, I call it the principle of replacement. Put off the old nature which belongs to your former manner of life and be renewed in the attitude of your minds and put on the new nature and true likeness and holiness. Uh, so the put off, put on, the replacement principle that Paul uh, talks about a number of places there. And then uh, lesion 25, I threw an extra word letter in there, um, is about money and uh, the, the bonus lesson. Uh, this, was, this book was rewritten uh, a number of years back, and, and, or not rewritten, re-released, I should say, or the next edition was done. And the, the, part, the, the university came to me and said, What's, what would you like to add if you haven't? If you would like to add something, I said, well, I'd like to put a lesson on stewardship on money. Um, so I think that's a discipleship issue, don't you? Did Jesus say, where your treasure is, there is your heart also? Or maybe it gets right to the heart of the discipleship issue in actuality. So, so that's, that's the content uh, that uh, is there in that material. Uh, what do you think? Does that cover something that's worth covering? Uh, okay. Um, what's missing? Uh, we each bring a tradition here uh, out of our own uh, frameworks. In Methodists here have a holiness tradition. You've got uh, people out of maybe Episcopal background and more sacramental tradition. Um, so, um, <laughs> where 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 would that where would that be? Right, you see anything? Any holes here that you would fill? Right, they 
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah, we talked about the elements of quiet time, and and the very reason I put that early, yeah. you're you're identifying. Uh, some people say, well, why don't you move that section to some later on? I said, no, I want people to practice these habits uh-huh. throughout the time. Yeah, there. Best way to do the material in terms of preparation is do a little bit a day. Uh, you know, this is not cramming for a test. Like, oh no, the night before my disciples are group, I better go through all this stuff. Uh, the idea is do it in small chunks, you know, and work this into your, you know, quiet time. It doesn't have to be the whole totality, obviously, of your quiet time. But the idea is practicing it exactly. Yeah. But oh, one thing I, I am not seeing here is something on forgiveness. Uh, our, you know, God's forgiveness of us and you know, our forgiveness of other people. Yeah, I mean, in terms of that that relational thing. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. What I see is, uh, don't see it here is on forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us, which is certainly grace, uh, but our good forgiveness of others in terms of the relational side of things. There, one one of the um, things I do on a regular basis now in terms of my ministry is I do prison ministry. So every Wednesday I'm at prison. Forgiveness is a huge issue uh, for prisoners because uh, they have violated people. They need to be forgiven, uh, and they need to forgive other people as well. And I have a, there's a fellow in a Texas prison um, and that is doing a uh, Discipleship Essentials prison version. Uh, he's done a ma- marvelous job. And he, he, re- he recognized that very same thing that you're seeing. And so he has a, a section of four additional lessons that he's put in there, particularly for prisoners and the issues that they deal with. And there's a separate chapter on forgiveness that he's done uh, on that. So... Yeah, there's yeah. That certainly is a, a good observation. Yes. As you send out uh, groups to do the next generation, do you have formal or informal shepherding for the the mix of this world that are leading the next groups? Yeah, I think there's uh, kind of an oversight group uh, that most churches develop uh, in terms of kind of a coaching structure um, that it can be set up. Uh, the people that you find are good reproducers uh, become good coaches. And uh, you can set up a coaching structure where you have a coach that's in touch with, say, two to five group leaders, and they can stay connected and call up and say, how's it going? Any questions you have, issues that you're running into? Um, You can actually continue on, in a sense, with the quad coaching process of pulling four leaders together periodically and uh, then have them debrief their experience with each other. How's it it going? Sure. So let's share with each other the benefits and where we've seen God at work. Uh, what what challenges are you running into? Uh, so you can have people coach each other in that in that way as well. So set up a, a coaching structure in that fashion that uh, can provide the support. Yes. And how well the disciples stay with the program? Do you absentee rate, dropout rate? Have you had any? Those who are participants in the groups. Yeah, I think what hap- if you do a good job up front, we talked about this, uh, I think, a session or two ago, uh, around the covenant. So all about the process of the invitation and, and how you start a group is very important in terms of uh, ensuring a, a follow-through of, of people. So uh, if I can just, uh, we'll deal with this probably more in the last session um, after lunch. But um, the idea that 
you're inviting somebody to join you. So the first thing you do is you pray about who, who God puts on your heart. And you wait until there's a settled conviction that you are to go invite somebody so that you can say, as a part of the invitation, you know, I'm starting a new group. I'm on this journey of discipleship. I need companions with me on that journey. And God keeps putting you on my heart uh, and saying to me, you know, gosh, I would like to have you join me on that journey. And then if that person responds by saying, yeah, I want to I explore that, you sit down with them and you uh, share with them what's involved. Uh, Ralph mentioned that he says, read the first 14 pages of Discipleship Essentials, you know, and, uh, and then we'll talk about what the expectations are. Page 14 is the covenant, and it states what the commitments are in the relationship, and that somebody has to sign off on the covenant. And I always ask them, uh, when I'm going through the covenant, uh, what do you think this is, requires of you? What, what will this take of you for you to be involved in this relationship? How much time do you think it will take? Uh, I'll even ask the question, we live up to the margins of our life. We, to add something else of this significance says, gee, am I, am I, am I over the edge? <laughs> and I will say, is there something you need to stop doing in order that you can do this? Um, so, and, and, and talk to your spouse about it as well. <laughs> So if you do a good job of foundation laying, your attrition rate is very low. So that's, I think that would be my best suggestion along those lines. Well, the strategy of subterfuge, oh, how would you get something going in the context of your, of your church? Um, yeah, you already heard what I said. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you have an existing group you're saying and, uh, and you're a layperson leading this, how do you get it going in your church? Is that, is that your, your question? Yes. Right. Um, That's the idea. But you're not, you're going a bottom down approach, a lay, like a, a grassroots And bottom up, bottom up approach, yeah. Yeah, versus a top down. And how, so how do you do that in a wise way, not to get it? Well, I, I, frankly, I would, I, I would honor your pastor by, or whoever the appropriate person is, to say, you know, I like to do this. Um, I, but I, I don't want to just go charging off doing it on my own. I don't want to sneak around. Uh, I, I want you. To, I want permission to kind of experiment with this. Um, would, I, I would think most pastors would, would not see that as a threat, hopefully, unless it is some direct violation to some uh, philosophy of ministry that you already have. Uh, so, so I would I would do the permission giving kind of thing, so you got that cover. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. That message was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download the free PDF that summarizes exactly how they teach people to do the microgroups that are made up of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.